Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. <laughs> Welcome back inside the Cubs locker room. I'm with Theo Epstein. He's the boss. Yeah, Bill! We just won the World Series! Oh, my mother thanks you, my father thank thanks you, you, my sisters thank you, my brothers thank you. I thank you. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Welcome back to The Run. This is episode four of us tracing the 2016 Cubs postseason run, get it, to the World Series championship. And um, Roy, we have gone through the Giants series in uh, in previous episodes. The Dodgers are looming, but we have a chance to step back now before the National League Championship Series and talk to somebody who has come up many times already and is maybe the principal figure in this entire saga, frankly, and that is the architect, the president of baseball operations, Theo Epstein. Now, we all know Theo's backstory in Boston. He broke one curse. Can he come to Chicago and break another curse? I'm just thankful that the man made time. I think it's dope that we caught him in, like, his, his baseball, what, gap year? Is that what they call it? <laughs> the young kids? Yeah, yeah he, he's he's working for the commissioner, but it's really kind of on, on his own time frame and stuff. He's between jobs, I think, is a fair I'm way. I'm waiting to, to see talk about which it. organization I what what third curse is out there <laughs> for me to for me to take off the table. But I think it's very important to talk about this because what Theo built, it's bigger than just statistics and slotting people onto a roster. It was about working also, and this is pre-Joe Madden as well, in figuring out how to create a team that is cohesive. Yeah, I think historically we think of the manager as the big dog in the baseball organization and the guy who sets the entire culture and template for an organization, but that changed. It changed, and it's really now the front office guy. You know, maybe Billy Bean in Oakland was the most famous of that new guard in Moneyball, but then it was Theo and a lot of the people that he groomed who have now gone on to do it in other places where... The manager is an extension of the front office. The manager is fulfilling the vision of the front office. And and to that extent, we should mention something called Carmine, which is the software that Theo and Jed Hoyer and Jason McLeod invented in Boston. And it was to scout players. And this is what they did legendarily in Boston. They drafted players better than anybody, right? They signed players better than anybody. And Carmine was just a software, and every team has it now, but it's like they invented their own software, and it was like, okay, we'll take this component, speed. We'll take this component, hitting. We'll take this component, mental aptitude. We'll take this component, maturity. We'll take this component, character, personal character. Like they they would break down the scouting profile into all these different things and then put them together and come up 
with a number, a specific proprietary metric, if you will. And that's how they scouted people. And that was legendary. By the time he comes to Chicago, after it flames out in Boston, people are like, oh, what, what are they going to do in Boston? Or what are they going to do in Chicago that, that is like Carmine in Boston? And guess what? They called it Ivy. Roy, they created <laughs> Ivy is their proprietary software so they could scout and acquire people that they thought had what it took to be a component of a winning team. This hear. man created Tinder for sports scouting. <laughs> hey, I need a shortstop that could do this, this, and this, and this, this, and this, and won't cost me more than this. Yeah, yes. <laughs> he swiped right on Mookie Betts in Boston. That was impressive. Uh, <laughs> And then, then he swiped right on Chris Bryant here in Chicago. There are, but there are so many other intangibles that Theo was able to consider, that things that you just can't calculate in terms of character and in terms of chemistry amongst people. I mean, the fact that Theo and his crew, you know, they'd rent a house together. And just sit and talk baseball. Like, that's how you start melding minds. Yeah, they did it in Boston when they had spring training in Florida. And they did it in Arizona when the Cubs had spring training out there. And it'd be the whole front office, like all these different guys, a big staff that Theo would um, get together. And they would sit around and talk baseball, but they would also sit around and play poker. And they would drink. And they would play flag football or tackle football. And they would... And this became true in the building at near Wrigley, the, the front office building. They have uh, video games and they have pinball and, and foosball. And it's like they get super competitive in everything. And they get competitive in gaining the next market inefficiency that makes them a better scouting team than other organizations. So they are building that culture in every single way like you're talking about. I, I really can't even think of anything to compare it to. Like, I'm trying to compare it to a television show or, like, acting, but acting is so different in a sense, especially post-COVID now, where you don't really see a lot of your co-stars. Unless we're in a scene together, I'm just never going to mm -hmm. see you. So I have to hope that you're doing your thing, and on my days, I'm going to do my thing, and together, we have a wonderful, cohesive television show. The only thing that might be close is when you do a multi-camera sitcom comedy. Um, I did this show called Sullivan and Son on TBS, and we went three seasons. And that was very much a family-like atmosphere. We hung together. We drank together. We went out back and forth. But that was also a show where everyone was actively present. Ironically, executive produced by Steve Byrne and Vince Vaughn, both huge sports guys. So, huh. you know, maybe there's some parallels in that. I've always thought about a culture like that, to me, it's a band. Like I, when I'm part of a big rock and roll band, trying to get our music together and get our stuff together, there is a sense of trust that has to be there where you trust that each person is going to bust their ass and be the very best they can be. Because if they don't, they're going to let you down. Like you don't want to let each other down. You got to bring your best and rely on each other to do your best or else the whole is not going to be as good as the sum of the parts. So I've tried to make that corollary to Theo before and he has rebuffed it and swatted away like the hipster <laughs> the sabermetrician that he is. Like, oh, I don't know if the band thing really works, but you know, <laughs> but he's a mix. He's a mix of that personal culture and 
and the data culture. That's what has made him special through the decades. Well, I'm excited to see how he got all of those pieces together. So uh, let's jump into this conversation with Theo Epstein. The man himself is here, Theo Epstein. Theo, welcome in. I was telling these guys about the cover of the Chicago Sun-Times when you came here into Chicago and you were walking on water. Just the absurdity of that. Is there any perspective now looking back at just how ridiculous that was? I didn't need the benefit of time to know that one was ridiculous. Um, (laughs) But kind of comes with the territory. Usually as an executive, when you're when you're joining a new organization, it's because they, they need to turn things around, have to, have to build something. So there's going to be outsized and exaggerated attention on you as an executive early on until you bring in the people who matter the most, which are the players. So at that time, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot on the big league club. And so I knew there was going to be a little bit extra attention on me. And you're kind of prepared for that, but you, st- you still roll your eyes because as you know, as we all know, it's a team effort, an organization-wide effort. You know, no one executive can turn things around or or build anything really on his own. It's a group effort. And so, and and then I also knew it was going to take time. You have to start with the foundation and kind of slowly build something special. The draw to get here, uh, Theo, like how much of it was about, you know, the Cubs-ness feeling similar to sort of Red Sox-ness with all the losing and the the passion of the fans in the ballpark and stuff. Did that matter or was it the opportunity uh, more than anything at the very beginning? I had just gotten through with, you know, a decade with the Red Sox and, you know, looking back on it, the the most meaningful part of it to me was being able to feel like I played a small part in in creating something special that that resonated with so many so many people uh, and their families in, in so many important ways, you know, just the century of, or near century of frustration and all the love that had gone into that franchise to be able to help create this cathartic moment that, that resulted in subsequently, you know, this wonderful privilege of having, you know, almost every day Red Sox fans come up to me on the street or wherever and share intimate family details about what the championship meant to them. And, Mm. Uh, how it connected them with their family members, including those who, who who didn't quite live to see the day, and how special that was. I mean, that's just that's that's like a holy opportunity, you know, to be part of something like that. So, I, I always need to feel really, really connected to the mission and feel like it has meaning and resonance. And so, as I was looking back on that and, and looking at the rest of the baseball world, it was it was kind of obvious to me that the the only place that you could possibly be lucky enough to to have that feeling again would be would be in Chicago and everything's kind of lined up where they're you know the Ricketts family about the team they're making some changes I was at a point where I wanted to you know explore something new so it all it all really lined up well talk to us a little bit about you know analytics versus gut like do you consider yourself a money ball disciple I don't consider myself a money ball disciple mainly just because my my formative years in, in baseball where I was um, developing you know, the foundation of, of my philosophy and approach preceded Moneyball. Um, so I've, I've always tried, tried to have balance. And that's where I think the most accurate view of players and, and, and decision-making lies. And that is the objective analytical side is fundamentally important. So you have to make sure you have the best data, the, the best analysts, that you're, you're adjusting 
you know, for every possible variable that you're out there capturing proprietary stuff that no one else has, predictive and actionable. And so knock that side of it out of the park. You also have to understand the value in traditional evaluation and hire the best scouts and put them in a position they can they can tell you things that the numbers can't in, in, in a lot of circumstances. And then, you know, this, this is a, a people business, people industry. Players are far more than the numbers on a spreadsheet or, or the numbers on the back of their baseball card or even what the, the predictive metrics say they're going to be in the future. And they come to work every day with uh, hopes and, and fears and family situations and, and how, they, how they interact with their environment around them and with their teammates, all that matters, you know, just the same way it matters, like how we feel when we go to work each day, how we feel about the collective mission, how we feel about our colleagues, how we're feeling about things at home, like that, in, that clearly impacts your performance and how productive you are in a given day. So you can't just ignore that and, and trust your metrics, to like spit out a good outcome. So I'd try to Make sure that the organizations I'm with can really be expert in all those areas as much as you possibly can, especially on the human side. It's far more art than science. And then blend those approaches to make good common sense uh, decisions. I know you love watching the humans get along like that and like sort of mesh like that. Um, what, who meshed like that for you among the players as you hit 2016? Remember you talking about being up in a tree when you guys started that ridiculous way at the beginning of 2016. Were you watching these guys mesh and, and who were the personalities that you saw coming together? Well, first of all, you know, can't skip 2015, right? Because that, that was such an important year and in a lot of ways almost more enjoyable than 2016. Because it was, you know, we, we were sort of new upon the scene. We were proven to ourselves as well as the world how, how good we could be. It was that, you know, the, the sort of some of the burdens that come along with, with expectation and fame hadn't really kicked in with that team yet. So we were just out there kind of, you know, kicking ass and taking names and, and having fun. And then it, it came to an end in the NLCS. We went out and had a real productive offseason. So the, the vibe around the team starting in, in spring training 2016 was okay. We, we know we're really good. We know we have a legitimate chance to, to make history. We're going to put the work in. We're going to be present. We're going to be there for each other because we don't want anything to get in the way of this opportunity. Like we're, we're here to make the most of this opportunity and we know, we know how big it is. And so opening day, 2016, um, we were in Anaheim and you know, the guys were, were excited to get going the way it always, you know, a lot of butterflies, a lot of nerves on open day, the way it always, the way there always is, but went out and played the perfect game, you know, road game openers, never, never easy. And went out and played a great game. And then remember being down in the clubhouse after the game and everyone was looking around, kind of impressed with each other. And, and, and it was like, okay, you know, that's how good we are. That's how good we can be. You know, let, let's go do this 161 more times. Like let's, Let's let's make the most of this of this opportunity, and a lot of that will mean being being there for each other, and being being accountable, and building up trust, and putting the team first. And yeah, you know, we now are part of something bigger than ourselves. So let's let's go make the most of it. And there were leaders, and there were players who who did more of that sort of culture creation and, and nurturing uh, of the team dynamic. But everyone was was invested in in what was going on in, in their rooms.
how much did you expect Joe Madden to Joe Madden when you got him there? Like, let's when you when you first saw the pajamas, how comfortable were you all with him and just giving him the free range to kind of do what he needed to do with the players to kind of make sure that that clubhouse congealed in 2016? Yeah, totally. Um, we were 100% comfortable and you know trusted Joe. I mean, I, I had the benefit of, of really knowing what Joe was all about from being across the field from him with the with the Red Sox for you know, a long time and, and have many battles. So I think I understood what his vibe was about. And Joe, especially in, in his first few years in a new spot when he commands the attention of every player and when it's all new, he is just a singularly transformational figure. Like he, he, he brings a whole ethos, he brings a whole atmosphere, a whole environment and whole vibe with him. And so if you try to limit that in any way or put constraints on it, it's completely self-defeating. So we wouldn't have brought Joe in if we didn't want to let him do his thing. And, and we knew that would be a big and welcome change for our players. And we knew our young players who were just coming up to the big leagues or just getting to the point where they could, could really flourish would um, you know, be empowered by, by that freedom and, and, and the vibe that he, that he created. So it was a perfect fit. When I think of the culture of of what you had in, in your front offices before and like the competition and the, and the stuff that, that, that you guys would all do and the messing around and everything. It's like, you guys seemed like players. So like the connection between you and Jed and you guys and the players, it was fairly direct even before Joe got there. Like, so it, did you feel like, like you had a, a solid hand in the building of the culture of, uh, of that team and that clubhouse, regardless of the manager, frankly? Yeah, I mean, there was a real sense of togetherness in the organization. So some of those formal walls that, that usually exist were broken down. But there's, there's always going to be times when you're on opposite sides of the fence, fence when you're in the front office. That was a source of frustration. I, I felt like we had done a great job creating a culture you know, in the front office, in the scouting department, player development. Our minor leagues were you know, dominating and, and had, had an unbelievable uh, sense of identity and culture. But we haven't been able to really get to where we wanted to be in the big league clubhouse where you need not only that sort of looseness and sense of fun, but also a real sense of purpose. And you know, a lot of work and a lot of preparation has to get done while also having fun. And it's difficult. And you can't, you can't really be part of that as the front office, right? You're, you, you, if you spend too much time in the clubhouse no matter, as a front office member, no matter who you are, you're, you're bringing the place down. That's just not where we're supposed to be um <laughs> you know it for you know it's like you know the adults at certain age you know when you have kids when they reach a certain age like yeah you don't hang out at their party <laughs> that's just the way it goes um so we you, but it was a it was a source of frustration and, and looking anyway to try to tweak the recipe a little bit to get just you know with players that we brought in you know with the mandarin coaching staff and get to get just the right environment in the big leagues to, to make sure we unleash this talent to you know, had, had as many of our players as possible and reach their full potential as quickly as possible. And then so when Joe became available, was, you know, he's the obvious guy who's, who's really expert at doing that. It's almost an accident when he shows up by a sense of who he is, what he tries to create. Ryan Dempster talked about if 20 guys went out for drinks after a game or after BP or something, and you see 20 cars, it's a bad sign. What you want is five or six cars with 20 people stuffed in them. What are some of the signs, like what are, what are the small things that show you that a team is coming together? There's always a lot of clubhouse chatter, a lot of side conversations, a lot of stuff that, you know, you pick up on just being around the team and 
when that chatter is predominantly complaining about certain players and things that they did or didn't do, that's a pretty good sign that there are some, some issues in the clubhouse and that players are, are sort of blaming each other and, and seeing problems and not solutions. When that chatter is all about, you know, what's going on with other players and, and, and how to help them, you know, and how to, how to bring them along, how to uplift them, you know, it's in a, it's in a good place. And that, that's really what, when it was like around 2016 is every player goes through ups and downs during the course of the season. But, um, when your teammates are invested enough in each other to like anticipate those issues and be there for them and, and know them well enough to like offer real support, and real solutions, and you're in a really good place. And I think that's what we had in 2016. You know, David Ross was an important figure. By that point in his career, he was really attuned to the different ingredients that go into winning, whether it's, you know, finding the guy who might be a little isolated from the group and like make sure, making sure he goes out to that dinner uh, with, with his teammates to sort of be, be brought back in, whether it's making sure when someone doesn't run out of ground ball or just, you know, makes a mental error on the field, no matter who it is that he's on the top step, you know, holding that player accountable, all the different ingredients that go into winning, whether it's, you know, a, a light note or some humor to break some tension or, or a stern word to like, make sure everyone gets down to business when it's, when it's important. He, he was, he was really as a backup catcher, 80% of the time you have the ability to like look and observe and he was really attuned to that and, and very proactive in making sure that the group was, was cultivating those those important behind the scenes winning elements and culture was awesome that year that's the stuff they can't put on the back of a baseball card culture cultivator we're gonna be talking to david ross a little bit later uh, in the series and looking forward to that here on the run so as you look at the chemistry of the whole thing i don't know if you feel the same way about chemistry now as you did earlier in your career if that's evolved at all um but but what did what did dexter fowler mean what what did it mean to bring dex back um in the surprise fashion that it was 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 really fun clearly for the the players involved as well yeah, no, Dex, Dex was really important with his role on the field. You know, was a, was an important figure off the field too in the clubhouse. But yeah, I mean, look, we traded for him and it was an expiring contract and he had had the great year in 15. So it looked like he was going to sort of price himself out of our, in our situation. But we had a great relationship, stayed in touch over the winter when it was clear that he was going to be one of those guys that just... It, the market wasn't treating him fairly. It just didn't line up. We were able to to be there on a one year deal and at least at least give him everything he was looking for as far as the destination, if not the contract. And it was awesome to to get him back and a nice boost in spring training. I don't think his teammates expected it, so that that felt like it completed the group. And and uh, yeah, he was he was there in '16 to provide that energy and smile too. All right, so you get to October, and you mentioned 2015 and how important it was. It's like you get swept in the NLCS, but it seemed like there was zero loss of momentum or optimism or good feelings. And when you hit October, how how good were you guys feeling? How confident were you? You know crazy things can happen in the playoffs, but still, best team in baseball, rolling, 1-10, to 10, where were you guys? You have a special season and then you hit October, it becomes serious because this is your chance to actually do something. You know, we know the regular season 
it's, it's a meritocracy and it's it, it really meaningful and it's a tremendous accomplishment when you dominate a regular season. But your chance to make history is in October and it just introduces all these variables including you know randomness luck fate you know sequencing whatever whatever you want to call it right there's you know um a long list of teams throughout baseball history that were talented enough to win the world series that didn't uh, just because the ball didn't bounce their way in, in october and so you, you get to that point where like, okay now now it's a three or five series now we you know now we can't afford the the two and three you know stretch because you're done and so it, it brings, I think, the focus and, and the concentration to another level. The key is to be able to do that in a way that doesn't, you know, freak everybody out and, and, and stress them out. And so I think what players fall back on, and we were no different, is sameness, right? You try to just make it another game. You, you try to just like keep your routine, keep your approach, even though you all know it's not. Everything is, is completely heightened. But we had the, we had the benefit of... Um, starting at home, winning those first two games against the Giants, but like the, the, the yes. huge test in the game one when we couldn't score and the wind was blowing in and everything. And then Javi's homer, I think, really broke the ice for us. And that was a ball that almost didn't get out because the, the wind almost pushed it back in. Talk about, yeah, the fades and, and yeah, October fades and things that can happen, but he crushed it and had just enough and got into the basket. And then, then we were kind of off and rolling and, you know, had a ton of energy in game two and, and, and and played well. And then, yeah, we lose game three. Giants got some big hits. And then game four, you're right back in that frustrated mode where you can't score. Or maybe you're squeezing the bat a little too hard. And the comeback in, in game four in San Francisco was, you know, probably the key ending of, of the entire, well, besides, you know, besides game seven of the World Series, the key, the, the, the key ending of the entire postseason, really. Going into the Dodgers series, how much more daunting did that seem? than the Giants because I, I'm just I'm just speaking as a lifelong Cubs fan on the couch. You know, I I did have an RBI game winning walk-off strikeout in high school. So as an athlete, Theo, I was very nervous for the Cubs. At any point as an executive, how much are your emotions getting involved in this? My emotions don't matter at all. Let's be clear. Like in the postseason we hardly do anything. I mean, the decision to bring Schwarber back, that was a big one and helping set the rosters and everything else. And, you know, we, you know, kind of make sure everything that that's needed to put the game plan together and the advanced scouting reports, all that, you know, we're there and we're doing our jobs, but essentially things are out of our hands at that point. So it doesn't matter how much do we feel the emotions the entire time, the entire month of October, you're sitting there with like clenched stomach muscles, you know, on edge, you know, watching the fate reveal itself before you and pitch by pitch in excruciating manner. So yeah, you're just, you know, you're a mess. <laughs> we do all kinds of silly things to blow off steam. We started a tradition of um, before every postseason series, all of us in the front office who were traveling, we'd find an awesome venue um, like uh, Staples Center in LA before that series. You were talking about LA, we'd just go, we'd go play hoops. And blow, blow off some steam, uh, call in some favors, get a, get a nice court, get a nice run going. Way to like blow off some steam because we we were all so nervous, and you can't you can't let the players see that, right? They don't want to they don't want to see the front office sitting there, you know, biting their fingernails or anything. It's just bad for the vibe. So you got to keep you got to keep this level head as if you know you've been there and done that, and a lot of us had. But at the same time, you're not fooling anyone when you're watching the games. You're just a total wreck trying to trying to. 
you know, you have a lead, you're counting the outs, just like the fans trying to figure out how we get 12 more outs and, you know, as tired as your bullpen is, and what's Joe going to do here? And it's like everyone else. And, and when you're behind, you're just, you know, you're just praying for, for base runners, big hits, a bloop and a blast, just like everyone else. Is that helplessness worth it? Like that helplessness for you, you build the whole damn thing or you feel so connected, then there you are in the stands, unable to 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 pull those those levers when when you might want to. That's gotta be insane. insane. Yeah, you know, it's look, it's fun, it's hell, but it's yeah, it's also torture. But I think it's good. I think postseason torture, postseason failure can be constructive for the organization and for an executive as well, because it makes you really determined to try to plan for every possible contingency and 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 try to try to create the redundancies. Like when you're sitting out in the off season, you're trying to build a team to win 95 games. You think of all the things that could go wrong that could get in the way of you winning 95 games. You try to have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, a plan D. You know when you're going to tweak it midseason, but that's your job is to, you know, you can't complain about injuries. You can't complain about like you have to plan for those things at a time. And then in the postseason, like there's not a lot you can do, but there's there are things you can do. It's why in 04, you know, we're like, hey, 90 feet might make the difference in 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 us winning the World Series or not. So you you trade for for Dave Roberts and and he didn't have a single plate appearance in that in that postseason, but he stole a pretty big base. And then in, in 16, you know, we knew even though our bullpen was putting up good numbers. At the deadline, we knew there were a lot of things going on behind the scenes that would leave our bullpen vulnerable. Um, yeah, for the, for the last two months of the regular season, but more importantly, for for the postseason. And I think deep down, we knew we weren't going to win the World Series unless we we really improved the the pen by doing it from the back to the front and and getting someone like Chapman who would then slide everyone else yes. down. Soul, so. It, it felt like Joe, was this a mandate or was it a suggestion? Go ahead and use every pitch that is in Chapman's arm that is available. Because it felt like Joe took it there, perhaps to uh, a, an intense extent in terms of like, go ahead and use them. Don't be afraid to use them with everything you got. Well, I mean, he's a, he's a physical specimen and a horse and really durable and utterly dominant. So obviously you're going to use your best players the most, but... It's it's an art because if you overuse someone, especially in situations where you know it's not the highest possible leverage, then at a later point when when there is really high leverage, they're not going to be quite as good. And so you have to, you have to balance all those things. So even in a situation where like we're all in, all of us to like use use all of our bullets and you know try to win the World Series, you have to you have to be practical and smart and strategic and rationing. The use of those resources so that you can get the last out, you know, not just not just the out in the moment. So no, that was that's a constant balancing of interests, and you know, there, there were some moments along the way that you know it's really hard to figure out what is the right thing to do, and it never never works out exactly how you design it. But I don't think we you know, when we traded for Mike Montgomery at the trade deadline, you know, we had a plan for him. Nowhere in that design was get the get the last out of Game Seven of the World Series. So I don't, I don't think we thought you know he was going to be the guy on the mound. But wait, that's the way that series, <laughs> that game, of all like oh Mike Montgomery, the answer to a trivia question forever now. So, what are your memories of the win, Brian Terrizzo, Hip Hip Parade? 
and then there's a big fat parade. What what do you remember? What is most memorable for you about 2016? You could write a whole book. Just I mean, anyone can about how they experienced the World Series and and process the the moment and the aftermath. But you know, for me, certain certain moments stand out. You know, I was um, I had moved down behind home plate. We only had two seats, so I had my my wife on my right and had my um, that eight year old son kind of on my lap between us and you know talking to him you know between pitches and kind of watching the game through his eyes was good for me because it took me out of the freak out mode where you're hanging on on every pitch and had to kind of stay calm for him and and (laughs) just in case things didn't go well you know didn't want it to be like a lifetime trauma that he could deal with so just talk talking through the situation what we're hoping happens and keeping him calm and and then in the moment when you know when we got we got the ground ball because like any situation in an important game where like a pitch can be thrown and you win the game if you get it out but if they Hit the ball out of the ballpark, you lose. You're just freaking out. Every muscle's contracting. It's like praying for the best. And when the ball was hit, I'm like, that that could be a tough play. Like that might be an infield sing- single. Who's up next? And then you know you see Brian move real, you know, well to get in position. And then, of course you all see him slip, and you're like, oh god, here here we go. And, uh, so it was incredible relief when when you saw you know Rizzo field the throw, and then you know. It just hits you this, you know, it's a combination of unimaginable joy and then almost outweighed by the sense of relief. Because like, you know, for me coming here to Chicago, like I knew my job wouldn't be done and I knew I wouldn't allow myself to leave until we had won the World Series. And you just can't ever guarantee that. And and you only get so many opportunities to convert and, and do that. And so like, I, I have to admit, I felt a sense of like, personal relief but then the joy is just you know what it means to so many people like short focus the players what what they'd been through and how they had been there for each other and how they responded to to all adversity and and big moments and come through and then the broader organization all the sacrifices the the all-nighters the time away from family you know and then the fans like the, the blood sweat and tears and the generations of fans who had wanted it so bad and almost started to define themselves by not having it and and what it would mean to them and so it just hits you that you know all those people who had invested so much and and who would be transformed by this moment were now we're now free it, that moment was here we could just <laughs> just go enjoy it so yeah it's obviously wonderful wonderful <laughs> Theo, I, I, I hear everything you're saying but I I say this with the utmost of reverence you're a part of that too like you're one of the few execs that they cut away to during the game. So let's check in and see how he's enjoying it or how he's feeling. Like I can, Matt, I can name maybe four. Mark Cuban, I think they cut away to some. Jerry Jones, they cut away to some. It, like, how does it feel to be a part of that narrative as one of the characters who played a role in that? You know, it's just it's just kind of there. I don't take any extra satisfaction in being a quote unquote like character in this in this narrative. And frankly, I find it really annoying when they when they show any executives, especially me, in the stands, because it's ultimately the play like our jobs behind the scenes and the players are the ones determining everyone's fate. Um so so that part doesn't really resonate with me. How does it feel to know, like deep down, know that the work that that I put in, like with my brothers and sisters in the front office, 
mattered and, and contributed to that, it means everything. That's the reward. That's the incredible satisfaction of a job well done and, and being having that privilege of being part of something bigger than yourself. Like we have that as kids, right? Every team you're on, every little league team, every youth soccer team feels like the most important thing in, in the world to you, right? And then as you get into adulthood and you have responsibilities and jobs and and things get like more more stale and corporate, you you kind of lose that. You know, you have it with your with your kids and with your family, and hopefully with your friends, but adult life, you're not set up to to have that special sacred feeling of being part of something always bigger than yourself, especially in modern society. And so it's just a privilege to, you know, as an executive with a sports team to have that back and go on that ride and, and know that you've contributed. So it's as close as you can get to being back on that little league team, you know? And, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's the, the reward for me. We're, we're asking you in the conversation to go all the way back to the beginning. And now we're sitting here in the middle and here we are as we record this in 2021. And obviously things have changed. It's, it, it's like you guys did it so perfectly. We've seen all these different organizations try to do a rebuild. You guys had the three years of, of not necessarily being competitive. Then year four, you're really good and go to the NLCS. Then year five, win it. it, it in some ways, it, did it happen so fast? that it made it more difficult to live those three or four years after for the players, for you, for fans as well? No, I don't think the fact that it happened fast matter. I think the fact that it happened really early in the players' careers and that it was such a big championship. If you look at it, I think we were the, you know, but the players who took the field, youngest team in the World Series history and obviously yeah. one of the, if not the biggest, one of the two or three sort of most significant championships and we can deny it, but um, that contributed to a dynamic that just ended up making things a little difficult, you know, go, going forward in, in ways that were sort of individual and, and collective. Um, that's neither here nor there. It doesn't take, take away from anything. It was certainly nothing that couldn't have been overcome. But yeah, I think did sort of that, the scope of that accomplishment so early in players' careers color the way their careers sort of developed or decisions that were, were, were made or on and off the field. Like, yeah, it's, it always does, right? Like we're all a product of, of past events and circumstances and things like that. But, you know, I think this whole narrative of like that team accomplishing nothing afterwards is completely flawed. Like we rallied after a rough first half in, in the next year to, to have a really successful regular season, get back to the CS, which is, which is a huge accomplishment, outperformed uh, most World Series winners by any space you know, modern World Series winners by any stretch of the imagination the next year ended off going on, you know, making the playoffs in five or six years. A lot of players did some great individual things. And that's the most successful run from the franchise in over a century. And a lot of those players, you know, did some did some important special things after the World Series too. So Thank you so much, uh Theo Epstein. All right guys, take care. Good luck with it. Thanks, Theo. Thank you, Theo. Big thank you to Theo Epstein for his time there, Matt. He didn't have to give us that during his major league gap year. I'm appreciative. 
while he's there in between jobs, just lounging around the house. And, 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 you know, and he doesn't, he doesn't like to go in on the nostalgia and some of the big picture stuff, but we made him do it. And that's, that's our job here on the run. But also our job is to get into the nuts and bolts, the basics, the nitty gritty of those games and help people relive that specific postseason. We have the Dodgers NLCS in 2016 to talk about, and we get to do it with Pat Hughes on the next episode, man. Love, Pat. The play-by-play every single day for the Cubs for ever in a day. He has seen all the disappointment. He has seen all the heartbreak. Um, I'm curious to know from him just how hard it is to separate your fandom from the job. Because they tell you to be objective, but you can't mm-hmm. be objective. Right. How do you do that on the daily? And for anybody who's never heard the voice of Pat Hughes in conversation, it is maple syrup. I mean, it is just <laughs> remarkable. I'm like, oh, Pat, just say anything to me. I don't care what you're saying. Just keep talking. More words, please. And, you know, people know the call, Roy. People know the World Series call, Bryant to Rizzo and the longest drought in American sports, yada, yada. He said it. He's going to break it down with us, how we came up with it and what that moment was like for him when the Cubs won the whole thing. All right, Roy. Talk to you soon, man. Let's talk um, Let's talk Cubs 2016 next time we're together. What do you think? I'd rather talk Cubs 22. How about that? My eyes on the future, bro. Look at that. Rizzo, if you're hearing this, please come home. (laughs) Please come home. I think Javi's more likely, but I appreciate the wish. The Run is a production of Odyssey in partnership with Major League Baseball. Jody Avergan of Roulette Productions is our executive producer. Justin Kaufman is senior producer. Mixing by Joanna Ketcher at Nice Matters. Our theme song is a cover of Steve Goodman's Go Cubs Go by Chicago's very own The Hood Internet. Special thanks to J.D. Crowley and Mike D. at Odyssey and Nick Trotta at Major League Baseball. Mitch Rosen, Dustin Hapley, and Russ Matera and everybody else at 670 The Score. Also to everyone at Odyssey and Major League Baseball who helped make this happen. Special thanks to Mike Morgan and George Bell's mustache. Um, can I make any requests on your special thanks? No, these are my special thanks. Make your own Come list on, of man. special thanks. Damn it. All right. Well, thanks also to Paul Ossenmacher. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word. We'll be back soon with more of The Run. Run.